All right. I'm waiting for the confirmation. And we have it. We are live. Uh, welcome to the Tuesday live stream, answering your questions from the live chat. That means you can literally put questions in the live chat. I'm going to answer your questions right now on the spot. Uh, thanks for joining me. I'm Pastor Mike Winger. This is my ministry. Uh, I make videos and put them online for free so that it would just bless people. And sometimes we do Q&A, which we do semi-regularly now. And uh, that's what we're doing today. So you're going to put a capital Q next to your question. Most of you already know the drill. And that question has a chance at least. You know, I can't answer every question or the physical ability to do that. Has a chance at least of getting into the um, into the list of questions I'll, I'll answer today. So um, yeah, yeah, here's a quick update uh, for those of you who are putting your questions in. I've got a, I've already got a few questions here from AJ. Thanks, thanks AJ. Thanks to my mods, by the way, for being there. You guys are a blessing. Um, but I have a quick update, which is that my normal Sunday evening service I teach at my church. Most This is not relevant to 99.9% .9 of you entirely, um, but it's about to be relevant, okay? I usually teach this small group Sunday night study, but uh, due to government suggestions and me wanting to walk in wisdom and prudence, not fear, not compromising my walk with God, but walking in wisdom and prudence and honoring the Lord, we're not going to be meeting this Sunday, uh, at least for now. What I will do is at 5 p.m., Pacific Standard Time on Sunday, I'm going to live stream that Bible study. So I'll live stream it from, from here in my home office. I'll still be teaching it. It'll be live. You can join with me live as I teach Sunday evening at 5 p.m. Pacific Standard Time in the Gospel of Mark as we continue our study. Um, all right, here's our first question. This is from uh, Solomon Dahlberg. I've long tried to get an understanding of how to reconcile these verses, but never really come to an, any satisfying answer. I've tried to look uh, to look at the context for both of them, but they still seem contradictory. The verses I'm talking about are, okay, let me bring up these verses. So we'll read them, see if we can understand the question, and then perhaps, maybe, I'll have an answer off the top of my head that will be helpful. Luke 9.50, Jesus said to him, do, uh, do not stop him for, for uh, the one who is not against you is for you. Okay, um... This is the context here, for those who don't know, the context here is they encounter the disciples during the ministry of Jesus, his physical ministry on earth. They encounter people who were casting out demons in Jesus's name, but they're not part of the disciples like approved group. They're like, they don't, the disciples don't know how do these people really know Jesus? How, how are they doing things in his name? So here, John uh, or Luke 949 says, John answered, master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name and we tried to stop him because he does not follow with us. But Jesus said to him, do not stop him for the one who is not against you is for you. All right. Now, the I, I can already see where this is going to go. In the same book of the Bible, so Luke eleven twenty three, same author and everything, Jesus says this phrase, whoever is not with me is against me and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Um, now, here's the, 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 the help that context brings us because someone would say, well, look, well, wait. If you're not against me, you're, you're with me or you're for me. Well, but if you're not with me, then you're against me. These are consistent for this reason. I think Jesus is simply saying that there is a divide of the kingdom of those who are in the kingdom and those who are out of the kingdom. And those who are out of the kingdom, they're not with you and they're against you. And those who are in the kingdom, they're not against you. They're with you. They're for you. I don't see a contradiction here. Um, now, sometimes I don't see the force of the supposed contradiction that other people see. So I don't see how that's a contradiction. I think what it's saying is there isn't this third category of in-betweeners. It's, it's really there's those who are with us and not with us. Now, the reason why confusion about the first group comes up in the earlier passage in Luke, I think is because these people 
while they're doing things in Jesus' name, they seem to be followers of Jesus, but they're not part of the actual local group of the disciples. They're not part of, it, to put it in, I'm going to translate this into modern times. I don't want to be an, anachronistic here, but in modern times, it'd be like, they seem like they're legit Christians, but they're not part of my church. That's kind of how it feels. Um, I don't know them personally, and yet the church of Christ, the real body of Jesus Christ is bigger than any one organization locally, and it was bigger even than the disciples were aware of at the time of Jesus. So that would be my interpretation of that. I hope that helps. Um, to finish your your question here, um, Solomon, you said, how do we reconcile them and understand them in proper context, and how should we be how should we understand them practically in our lives today? So great questions, man. Well put. Yes, I don't see any actual contradiction here. Um, I, I don't see it, and I, I don't think anyone else should either. The application is easy. It's realize that God's kingdom is, is, is a black and white issue. There is a with and against reality, but we want everyone to change sides and become part of the with group. But the with group doesn't mean my local church, these us four and no more. <laughs> Only the people who agree with me about everything and who have exactly my perfectly right theology in every area. Uh, that's not what we mean when we say who the body of Christ is. So we can be more gracious. Um, next question. Rudy Arias says, regarding your last video about flat earth, although not relevant to it, what does the Bible say about other planets and their purpose for being created? Does it say anything about life in them? That's a really interesting question. Um, Rudy, I think I would want to spend some real time um, thinking about that. Does, does the text of scripture have any indications? I mean, it talks about how God created all things. Okay, so back in the day, um, they didn't call them planets, the stuff that they, that's out in space. They called everything stars. It was all stars. Like when planets, they used to call them wandering stars because they were stars, but they didn't follow the same pattern of movement that all the other stars have. So they called them wandering stars. And that was just planets like Venus or you know Jupiter or that kind of thing. Um, so we didn't really know that much about them. Um, we just know that God made them and that it shows that, you know, from scripture, God made them. It shows he is glorious. It's meant to show his power and his might. So the more we discover about space and about the distance uh, that there is in the universe, we see the mag magnanimity, mag magnanimousness. What's the word I'm looking for? You guys know what I'm talking about. You know, we see how big God's power is. We see God's vocabulary is also larger than mine. But we see um, uh, his glory in those things. Now, when it comes to what about them being inhabited? What about other planets being inhabited? I don't think we have anything in scripture that suggests uh, aliens living on other worlds, nor do I have something that definitively says that can't be the case. Um, I know people just like the idea. Some people just want it to be true. Okay, I get that, but don't push that on scripture because you want it to be true. Um, yeah, so I, I don't think we have that. Um, yeah, I, I think we sort of have to look to space to answer that question rather than looking to definitive clear teachings in the scriptures on that one. My opinion on that, um, maybe that would change if I did some more studying with that very thought in my mind, if I'm reading through the text of scripture. Yeah, the only extraterrestrial beings I read about in the Bible are God, right? God and angels. God, angels, spiritual beings. They are not terrestrial. They're not of the earth. So they're extraterrestrial in a sense, but not beings living on other planets. Now, there is one religion that does talk about those things and that I'm aware of, and that would be Mormonism, which talks about how God used to live on another planet, Kolob. Now, we don't know. It's not clear in Mormonism whether Kolob is the name of a planet or the name of the sun or the star that Kolob, the, that, or the Kolob is the name of the star that the planet orbits. It's not clear which one it is, but some distant, far out place called Kolob 
That's where God was when he used to be a human, according to Mormonism. And then he became exalted and became a God. And he put us here. And now we can become exalted and be gods if we're good enough. Um, so at any rate, yeah, there's a there's an extraterrestrial endorsement from a from a religion that I would say is not true. <laughs> okay, let's see. We have a question from uh, Pedro Jr. Is it possible that Christians made up martyrs' claims uh, to make their claims about Christianity hold more value and truth to the people in later centuries? Um, Pedro, uh, so it seems like you're saying, hey, you know, we, we've got this thing that we say sort of validates validates the claims of early Christians, in particular, the claims of the apostles that were eyewitnesses of Jesus. We have their martyrdom, or in some cases, to put it softer, their suffering as a way of validating their claims. Uh, when we say validating their claims, we don't mean necessarily that it proves their claims are true. We only mean that it proves that they were sincere. It gives us really good reason to think, well, they meant it, right? Because people don't knowingly die for a lie. Like they don't knowingly die for a lie like that. They're thinking, hey, um, like the like the 9-11 bombers, they, they flew their planes into the buildings. They're thinking, I'm going to be rewarded with, with um, 70 virgins or whatever. It was a lie, but they didn't know it. Like if they knew this wasn't true, they're not going to kill themselves and murder a bunch of people thinking it's also a lie. It shows their sincerity. Okay, it shows their sincerity. So we would say the same thing with the eyewitness apostles. They were like, hey, you know, Peter, James, and John are the chief examples of this. They, they went through incredible suffering. And very, very, very historically likely that they were suffered as martyrs died because of their proclamation of the resurrection of Jesus. What does this show? It shows that they meant it. It shows that they were sincere. So then we, we check off the lying box. Okay, it wasn't conspiracy. They didn't lie about Jesus. We can also then ask questions like, could they have been honestly mistaken? Well, it doesn't seem likely they could have been honestly mistaken. This many people having uh, these kinds of visions where it was uh, multimodal visions where they see Jesus in not only visually, but auditory and physical, and they can touch him, they can see him, they can hear him, all of the above, multiple times, long lasting visions, visions that don't just last for a second. So it sort of checks off the hallucination category. Boy, if they weren't lying, and they weren't hallucinating, what's left? They seem to have been telling the truth about the resurrected Jesus. Okay, so Pedro's question, <laughs> that's a long, long intro to that question. Pedro's question is, hey, is it possible that those martyrdom stories were made up? And I think in that case, um, I want to I want to give you a delicate answer. Um, Peter, James, and John. No, I don't think it's reasonably possible. It's not reasonable to think that those were made up claims. Some of the other apostles, some of those claims might have been made up later of their martyrdoms. This doesn't mean they weren't martyred. Um, it just means that we don't believe they were martyred based on those claims. So when we have much later claims about martyrdom, and some of them seem like they might have been embellished in storytelling. We think, okay, perhaps there's a historical core. Maybe they really were martyred, but then it was um, it was later on em embellished and exaggerated, and the story kind of grew in the telling or something, uh, because the the known event of the story that we have is so far from the source of the event of the martyrdom. So that's a possibility. But when I'm using the martyrdom of the apostles, I like to focus on Peter, James, and John because we have good reason to think in, in the first century that they were in fact martyred and that they were claiming to be eyewitnesses of the resurrected Christ. So it's complicated, it's nuanced a little bit, but Pedro, the, the, the general view is this. It's not reasonable. It is utterly unreasonable, I think, utterly unreasonable to think that, say, Peter, James, and John were not martyred. Or to say that the other apostles weren't also martyred. You might say we don't know what happened to them in some cases, but to say they weren't martyred is, I don't think, a reasonable claim. And further, to say they didn't suffer for their claim of Christ, that is a, seems an unreasonable claim as well 
even if they didn't get killed for their faith, they sure seem to suffer for it. And that's also evidence to support the authenticity of their claim. All right, Meg Ward has a question. Um, what would you say is the biblical way to proceed when a new member of your church shares a clearly new age message with the church community believing it to be a Christian call to prayer? Oh, Meg, that is a challenging one. Um, I would say, I'm going to give you a couple options and I'm going to ask you to have wisdom if this is a scenario that you're experiencing now. Uh, you have options, right? One option is that you go to the person. You approach them and you do it very gently and very you know calmly. Um, and you try to see how can I help them to see the better way to go about these things, you know. Uh, another option is you approach the leadership of the church and you say, hey, this happened and I think this is a concern. If you think your leadership is open to being discerning and thoughtful about those things, I would approach the leadership. But if if, you're, if your experience with the leadership is that they don't really want to think about it, uh, this does sometimes happen, right? Oh, man, you're slowing, you're slowing our role here. You're kind of messing up our flow. Um, look, we're, we don't care about the details. The theology is not that important. It's more about, you know, she was calling people to prayer. Prayer is good and that's it. So if you feel that's the way, then maybe go to her. Also, if you think that this is something that's just like a leftover for in a new believer's life and it's quickly going to go away, then it may be something you tolerate for a season. Um, but I will say this, like I know of one person, uh, Doreen Virtue. Doreen Virtue, she's a great uh, uh example of someone who came out of deep, deep seated into new age and new thought practices. She was a, she, she's got a YouTube channel, a big YouTube channel here on, on YouTube. And she became a Christian. She gave her life to Christ and she was a well-known new age guru who made like, um, tarot cards or they, 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 there's another word for them as well. I forget it. And she, she made tarot cards, that kind of thing. Uh, angel cards, she would also call them. And she becomes Christian and she's still doing some of these new age practices and doesn't realize they're bad. So it was a long season of sanctification. And later she makes videos saying, I've recanted of making that stuff. I didn't know I had this leftover new age stuff. But she also added something. She said, but no, no Christians were coming to tell me that this was a problem. They just said I was new age and that I was a, deceiv a deceiver and that I wasn't really a Christian. Instead of coming alongside me and saying, hey, that practice isn't Christian. Here's scripture to help support it. So they were interested in condemning her but not in helping her become sanctified. So there's some good counsel for how to maybe handle that. Lauren Woodyard has a question. How do I fire people at work and still show grace and be a godly leader? <laughs> oh gosh, thanks for all you do. Oh Lauren, that's a tough question, man. I have little experience firing people. Uh, not really something that I've been, I haven't been the ax man. <laughs> so I don't have a lot of experience at that. Um, yeah, uh, when I've sat down with people in our relationship with them, I've found in times where I have had to sit someone down and I had to tell someone that they were they were stepping out of a ministry, I first sat them down and I I told them how much I cared about them and they know it's true. Uh, this wasn't something that was new to them, but I let them know how much I cared. I told them, you know, try to build a bridge of love, and then I let them know here's the things we've seen, and give them a chance to just to defend it or explain it. And he just confessed, yeah, that's right. This is what's really going on. And I said, well, I'm so sorry to hear to say this, but we need to have you step out for now. And then I told him I was committed to him and I didn't want him to disappear. And I wanted him to be restored in ministry. I just wanted him to get, get these things straight in his life and to learn from this. And that I was with him and I was weeping with him as a brother. I don't know if that really applies very well into a firing situation though. So Lauren, I'm not really sure. Um, let all that you do be done in love. Um, but love here doesn't mean uh, just ooey gooeyness in our speech. It means that you care about the other person each step of the way. Um, but yeah, may God give you wisdom, Lauren. 
Don't really know what else to tell you. Sorry. Uh, Craig Petrone says, a while ago, you said you hadn't investigated whether or not you could lose your salvation. Have you or are you planning to look into that? Actually, Craig, I've spent a large number of hours on the topic. Um, so when I say when you say I haven't investigated it, that might be maybe I've misrepresented myself. Um, I don't want you guys to think I haven't looked into this. I've spent quite a number of hours on it, but I haven't brought myself to a real satisfying conclusion. I don't think you're going to lose your salvation by sinning too much. I don't think uh, that. I, I, the question that is floating in my head, in all honesty, I'm, I'm just a human here. I'm not the Bible. I wonder if scripture is indicating that there is a, a, a path of someone giving up their salvation because they apostatize, because they, they walk away from the faith deliberately. Sin might lead you to that path. It might be, bring you to a closer, closer to that decision. Uh, that's a possibility too. So these, these are heavy, important questions. Um, I know for some of you, you're so strong and so convinced and forgive me for not, I'm obviously, I, I should have a, I should be able to know, right? But for some reason, I'm just still confused on this issue. Um, it's not for lack of looking into it, but one day I'd like to devote more study time, like just take this topic and, and, you know, hack at it until I get to a conclusion and bring a teaching that would be a benefit to people one of these days. So sorry, Craig. Sarah Sophia says, Matthew uh, 6, 25 through 34 talks about not worrying. A good word for us today. <laughs> and that God knows what we need. But how can that be true when Christians can suffer without the essentials? Oh, this is this is a challenging question. Let's talk about this. Okay. So Matthew 6, um, Jesus is giving instructions to the disciples. And in there, one of my favorite verses, in fact, I've made life decisions based upon this verse. That's why I'm in ministry, actually was Matthew 6, 33. It was, it was there at a pivotal time when I chose to serve. Um, well, Jesus tells us what not to worry about, then what to worry about. And then he gives us what seems to be a promise that God's going to provide for us. Um, our basic needs, our necessities, water, food, clothing, that kind of thing, shelter. He says, do not be anxious in verse 31, saying, what shall we eat? That's one concern. What am I going to eat? All right. Don't say, what shall we drink? Okay, I need water. All right. Don't say, what shall we wear? Clothing, so food, water, clothing. For the Gentiles seek after these things. Your heavenly father knows that you need them all. God knows you need all that stuff. And then he gives us our instruction. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. So that all the stuff that I need in life, like food, water, uh, clothing, this kind of basic, basic necessities, essentials. I'm just bringing, you already know this. I'm just bringing everybody up to speed on your question here. All those types of things, it brings me to a place where I say, if I just serve God and I seek first his kingdom and righteousness, then God's going to provide all that stuff for me. And I think that um, that is one way to interpret this passage. Um, and I and I think that the interpretation, the correct interpretation, it, it says that and a little bit more. I think it says that and just a little bit more. So what I think we're getting here is... Um, a order of priority for our lives, that my life is first to seek first God's kingdom and God's righteousness. So God's kingdom is serving Jesus in my life and benefiting, whether it's in evangelism or in building up the church, the, the people of God, this is the focus. This is the number one thing in my life are those things, so seeking first God's kingdom and also his righteousness, which means in, in righteous obedience to Christ. So that when it comes to um, the needs of this daily life, food, clothing, shelter, all those types of things. I don't compromise seeking first God's kingdom and righteousness in order to attain those things. Boy, we're, we're, we're running low on food. And the only thing I could do is, um, is lie, cheat and steal to get food. 
I'm not going to do that because I'm going to seek first God's kingdom and righteousness. God knows what I need and he's going to provide that stuff for me. Here's the, now, so that's my affirmation. And I do live on that. I do live based on that. And God has provided for my life. I've seen it in my life. But what about Christians when they don't always experience, like there are some Christians that have starved to death. I think there are. Uh, There's some Christians that maybe have lack basic necessities, even though they seem to be seeking first God's kingdom and righteousness. And all I'm saying is that this is not a 100% in every scenario, no matter the situation, guarantee that it's going to happen. I don't think it is. I think what it is, is it's telling us your, um, your priorities are to seek first God's kingdom. And in general, he's going to provide for you. Now, what if God's will for your life in particular does involve starvation, does involve lack of necessities? Is it possible that that's God's will for your life in that scenario for some grand plan? It's possible. That would be the exception to the rule. It wouldn't be the rule. This wouldn't be a failure of what Jesus said. This would be, here's the general thing for all Christians. But but while you're doing this, um, there are potential times where there's going to be exceptions. Someone's going to be going through a season of suffering where they're lacking some sort of basic needs. Paul himself, now some would say, Mike, you're, you're, you're um, you know, you're just, you're, you're messing up the Bible here. Okay, but let me, let me take you to Paul the Apostle because I think he affirms this. Um, let's see. Um, I'm going to try and find this, this passage of scripture. I think it's in 1 Corinthians. Um, let me, let me think of what, where, what are the texts that it says here? Paul talks about how he himself has suffered without, without food or without clothing, right? Um, actually a couple different verses where he says it. I'll take you to one of them. Um, Philippians 4, 12. In this passage, Paul says, I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. So Paul seems to indicate there were times where he was brought low, where he was humbled and he had hunger and he had need, where he he didn't have the basic things he needed, at least for some season, but he felt he could do all things through God who strengthens him. So he saw it as God being glorified in his life, being glorified even in his weaknesses. So that's pretty significant. Um, 2 Corinthians 11 um, also mentions this, although this is not the passage I'm looking for. Let me, if I find it, I'll, I'll share it with you. But basically, you guys know the passage I'm looking for. It's uh, probably in the beginning of Second Corinthians. Where Paul talks about how he, he's gone through nakedness and he's gone through shame and he's gone through shipwreck and he's gone through all sorts of various sufferings in, and while he's been serving God and yet he glorifies God in all those things. So Paul, it seems, didn't take this. Ah, I, th- I think I found it. All right, let me show it to you. Uh, 2 Corinthians eleven twenty five. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I have been in the deep. In journeys often, in perils of water, in perils of robbers, in perils of my own countrymen, in perils of Gentiles, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils in, of false brethren, in weariness and toil, in... Um, in sleeplessness, often, in hunger and thirst, in fastings, often, in cold and nakedness. 
Okay, so Paul clearly saw that there were at least some times in the, in the life of a Christian where these types of things would happen for the glory of God, in the purposes of God, and that we shouldn't doubt our king as a result of this. So the general rule, uh, serve the Lord and he's going to provide for you. Don't, don't make decisions to sinfully compromise in order to get what you want. No, seek first his kingdom and righteousness. He can take care of your needs. That's what's happened in my life. And there are those other seasons of life uh, where the Lord has us suffering, not because of punishment for sin, but just because, yeah, we're going through hard times. Lord knows what he's doing with his, uh, with his plan for our lives. All right. There's another question and this is from Chris Buckland. Why circumcision uh, of all things? Why did God choose that, that as a sign of the covenant? What's the history behind it? The meaning? Um, well, Chris, uh, circumcision. So this was the sign of the covenant of the Old Testament, the covenant with, of God with the Jews, the the covenant where God would require all the males to be circumcised in the law of his of, of Moses. At the eighth day, they had to be circumcised. Circumcision was not uniquely Jewish. They weren't the only people who did circumcisions. There were other people who did it. But what was unique was the meaning of the circumcision within Judaism. This was the sign of the covenant. And um, it's, I don't know of any old Testament text that really gives us like a clear, just, you know, explanation of why this and not something else, why this and not something else. But I think that if we look at the law itself, it's meant to s- sort of create a difference between the people of Israel and, and, and the rest of the community around them, the rest of the world around them to make them unique and uniquely different. Now, if I'm able to read perhaps taking a slight liberty here in some people's minds, but I'm able to read a little bit of our New Testament understanding of theology into the old. Um, and I think this is appropriate. I think this is, can, be, can be done properly. I think the book of Hebrews does this all the time where it shows us Jesus and gives us new light on Old Testament uh, teachings. Then I can look at the, the putting off of the flesh, the putting off of my carnal nature. And I know this is this is could be vulgar to some people, but I think the idea of circumcision is that we're perhaps putting off the flesh, putting off the sin nature. That's the idea. And you can think about the details of circumcision. There's a couple ways in which it could picture that. So the picture here is not that we still need to be physically circumcised because we don't. The idea is that we need to put off our, our carnality, our, our sinful flesh and become different than the world so that we might walk in holiness to God. We ourselves have a circumcision of the heart, scripture says. So that, that's where I would see the symbolism Uh, behind circumcision. Um, Adam Tyler says, uh, Mike, could you speak to remarriage after a divorce of two Christians? I know, uh, I know reconcile uh, reconciliation of the marriage is best, but if the ex or ex spouse refuses, is it sinful to pursue a new marriage in the future? I'm going to ask you to wait just a, just a little bit here, Adam, because I'm teaching through the gospel of Mark right now weekly. And as I hit Mark 10 and we get to Jesus's words on marriage and divorce, I'm going to pause And I'm going to do a thorough, careful Bible teaching on the topic of marriage and divorce, answering the tough questions that come up and doing my best to try to help us to apply this into our lives carefully and thoughtfully and faithfully honoring God. I know there are a lot of people asking these questions. Let me bring it to you in a balanced and careful fashion. Uh, Miguel Ponce says, how would you suggest I help other believers? understand that Christians are not immune to the troubles of daily life in a way that will not cause them to feel... uh, Fearful or anxious? Thanks. Ooh, it's that caveat in a way that won't cause them to feel feel fearful or anxious. That caveat makes this a little bit more of a challenge. And I'll tell you why. It's easy to just quote scripture, right? Jesus says, um, "In this in this world, you have you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I've overcome the world." 
Like that's Jesus' own words. You could read him the words of Jesus. You will have fear or you will have fear. You will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I've overcome the world. I think that the Christian, the power of Christian hope, this is so valuable. The power of Christian hope is not that bad things won't happen to me. It's that the glory that is to come outweighs, outshines, and is incomparable to those bad things, no matter how bad they are. If I get cancer and slowly die, the glory that's to come is so wonderful that it is just, it outshines, it outweighs, and it is incomparable to that cancer that I'm suffering. If I have friends or family betray me and turn their back on me, if I find myself lonely, depressed, going through hard times, it's possible. But the glory that's to come outweighs, outshines, and is incomparable to the suffering that I'm currently experiencing. So the Christians don't need to think we'll have less suffering to have more hope. We need to have a better vision of eternity, of the glory that's to come. You will be in the presence of God in all of his splendor, in a glorified body with no more sin, in deep and wonderful permanent fellowship with brothers and sisters just expressing love and joy and happiness and laughter forever. You will be in the recreated heaven and earth, living out daily lives without the the soil of sin, without pain, without suffering, without death. Everything else will be a blip on the radar of eternal glory when we see Christ. Our ability to overcome uh, suffering, temporary suffering, is to realize that we have permanent joy ahead. I think that that's that's the thing I I would try to encourage them is get a better vision of heaven so that you can better handle the struggles of earth. Get a better vision of not just not just heaven, like going up into God's presence, but of God's recreation of the heaven and the earth. Um, get a better vision of eternity, that we might have a better handling of the suffering that is bound to happen to us in this world. In this uh, in this world, you will have tribulation, Jesus says, but be of good cheer. I've overcome the world. Let's see, Eli. Eli Pert says, I have an unbelieving sister and niece in a ho- in homosexual relationships. Uh, we have a good, loving relationship with them, but have not allowed their partners into our home. Should we reconsider this approach? Oh, um, I, uh, maybe, I don't know. I don't know if that I have the wisdom for you, Eli. That That's, I mean, the principles are in place biblically, right? You're going to walk in love. You, you don't want to, you don't want to be affirming or approving of the ungodly things that are happening, but you also don't want to cut off your outreach and your ministry and your relationship of, of trying to bring them to the truth of Christ. So there's like this balance of wisdom that needs to be tried to try to be maintained. Um, so I, I say pray and seek the Lord. I don't think I'm qualified to answer your your question because your situation is, is unique. I would so you know as a pastor, what I would want to do is I'd, I would sit here and I would ask you questions and I would just let you talk for half an hour about your relationship with them and about all the details of what's going on and about the the their boyfriends or girlfriends or whatever and their relationships. And I would just gather data and then I would finally give you an answer for your situation. But unfortunately, I can't do that with a with a question from a live chat. <laughs> um, uh, Aliyah Wright says, what would you say to someone who is trying to compare mythology to Christianity? Um, yeah, we see this a lot online where skeptics uh, frequently, not just skeptics, but even even believers will sometimes want to compare mythology to Christianity in a way of saying that therefore Christian claims are mythology or they're just simply myths in the popular sense of the word myth. And to this, I I think that um, what I like to do is I like to slow them down. 
So if they like to say, hey, um, Jesus is like Apollonius of Tiana, right? Uh, that Jesus is just like another copy of him, of Apollonius of Tiana. Well, then you go and you and you say, can you please explain that? Can you build a case for that? In what ways is Jesus like Apollonius of Tiana, right? Let, and you let them build their case. Or if they say, Jesus is just like Mithras, this dying and rising God. You, in what ways is Jesus like Mithras? Please tell me. You know, the Genesis is just like the Enuma Elish. Uh, well, in what ways is Genesis just like the Enuma Elish? What conclusions do you get from that? So you go on a digging operation where you want to get their claims out of their mouths and out in front of you guys so you could see them all. And then you want to deal, you want to deal with them one at a time. You deal with them. And guess what? I have a video on Apollonius of Tiana and how he is not like Jesus. And there's a, I have a teaching on several of these uh, you know about zeitgeist the movie zeitgeist where it just it just made up a bunch of stuff somebody just did a bunch of acid and made this movie called zeitgeist <laughs> and it really excited a lot of people for some reason um anyway th this 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 video i have online deals with this mithras and and osiris and these other supposed parallels to jesus um enuma elish no you don't have any significance there's nothing it's not teaching us anything about the christian faith when we read the enuma elish so what you do is you pack, you grab these one at a time, you get their claims out on the table, make them specify their claims, make them, what do you mean by that? What are you, are you saying this or that? What are the parallels? What are your conclusions from those parallels? That's step one. Step two, go and do a little research and then bring it back to them and say, you made these claims. Here's what I found. That should dispel that discussion if they're going to be reasonable. Um, Catherine Bears says, hi, Mike. I was recently asked, how can I trust your interpretation of a Bible verse or any other person's interpretation? Also, if the Holy Spirit is helping you interpret, then why might we disagree? Um, so, Catherine, um, I'm, you were recently asked how someone should trust your interpretation. How can they trust your interpretation of the Bible verse or any other person? Um, and then the other question, they're both related. And, and both of these questions, I think they have a, a false assumption. And the assumption is that for me to say the Bible is saying this, that I have to have a special authority or a special inspiration from the Holy Spirit. As though I'm asking you to believe because it's coming from me, not because it's coming from scripture. All that's required from, for you to listen to my interpretation is for you to see that my interpretation is legitimate in the text. So you could say, look, I've, I've, I've interpreted the text. Absolutely, I have. Why should you trust it? Because look at the context. It has these words in it. Because look at the phrase here. It has the, It's written right there. It seems very clear. Look at how it's interpreted in this other passage. It seems very consistent. You know, with Matthew 6.33, I, I did this. I didn't tell you just believe this. I said, look, Paul's life obviously was seeking first God's kingdom and righteousness. Yet he went through some of these sufferings. So we see they can still occasionally happen. And so that I'm, I'm building my understanding of, basically I'm letting the Bible provide you with an interpretation as much as possible. I'm validating my claims. I'm showing them to you. This, this is what you want to do with your friend. You are not saying, believe my understanding of the Bible because I have the Holy Spirit telling me what it means. I don't think that the Holy Spirit gives us guaranteed interpretations of scripture. He can. He can. But I notice I use the word guaranteed. Guaranteed. And I've had times where people said, well, I really feel like the Lord led me to this. And they say something and you're like, no, that's pretty clearly wrong. So the problem here is not the Holy Spirit. It's our impression of the Holy Spirit. That's the problem. That can be a problem. Uh, let me tell you guys real quick, some couple things I have going. Um, tomorrow, tomorrow night at 6.30 p.m. Pacific Standard Time, I'm going to bring on uh, Dr. Michael Brown, and we're going to talk about Messianic prophecy. Messianic prophecy. This is your, 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 for your 
pandemic boredom. We're going to be doing more live streams, more content on this channel. So tomorrow, Dr. Brown live, and we'll take your questions afterwards. You know, how do we show that Jesus really is the Messiah of the Old Testament? We're going to talk about that 6.30 p.m. Pacific Standard Time, Wednesday. Also, probably coming out Wednesday morning, tomorrow morning, I'm going to put out a video on the supposed Dead Sea Scroll forgeries in the Museum of the Bible. I did an interview with uh, Wesley Huff on this topic, and I'm making a video where I'll be putting that out probably tomorrow morning, uh, maybe even late tomorrow night. We'll see as soon as I can get it up. Uh, that's what that's what we got going on right now. Let's see. Um, Weaver Doctor Eighty One says, "Is the rapture pre-tribulation, post-tribulation, or pre-wrath? And where does the Bible say?" Um, Weaver. So the rapture is that doctrine that the um, believers will be taken up. The ones who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will be caught up in the air to be with the Lord. That word caught up, it's, this is from Thessalonians. That word caught up in the Greek is harpazo. Well, har, harpazo, like harpoon or something, right? We're caught up, we're pulled up in the, in the Latin rapturus. So we get the word rapture from it. So the rapture doctrine connects to that passage in Thessalonians, right? Um, we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will be caught up together to be with the Lord. So we, everyone believes this is going to happen. Like in my view, everyone believes in some kind of rapture, whether they think it's pre-trib, mid-trib, post-trib, or if they're uh, some mill view or whatever, but they believe there's probably some sort of being caught up because First Thessalonians talks about this. The timing of it is a big debate. And some people don't like calling it a rapture. I, I understand that. That's fine. Um, but they believe that the event will happen. So pre-trib... Uh, one of the arguments for pre-trib is that God has not appointed us to wrath. This is in First Thessalonians. That's an argument for pre-tribulational rapture. Um, um, one of the another argument is that they see in the in the book of Revelation, they see John as a picture of the rapture. So when John is caught up in Revelation four, he's caught up to heaven, and that's when all the judgments begin. And they say, well, John is a picture of the church. So the church is caught up to heaven, and the next thing you see is God working in the Jewish people. And so a bunch of Jewish people are getting saved, 144,000, 12,000 from each tribe, and they're preaching and they're evangelists effectively in some, in some regard, and so people, a bunch of people get saved. So that would be a pre-trib rapture view. There's also mid-trib rapture views, and those who think that sometime in the middle of that seven-year period, there is, a, um, uh, there is a rapture that we're caught up, and I'm trying to think of the, the arguments for the mid-trib rapture view. They would still say it's pre-wrath, right, because the... The, the tribulation, the seven years of wrath, well, the, the, the great tribulation is the second half. So halfway through, now we have great tribulation. Now we have a pre-wrath rapture view. And um, I'm trying to think right now. I can't remember off the top of my head some of the arguments for that. Um, uh, normally I can. I'm sorry I'm not able to recount that to you just now. Um, yeah, some of you, in the, maybe in the live chat, you could even help each other out. But there's another view, which is the at the end of the tribulation, at the second coming of Christ, that's when it happens. And there we're, we're sort of caught up and we are, you know, Jesus comes back when we're, we're caught up to meet him in the air on his way to return. And the, the strongest argument for this is probably the argument that there's only one more coming of Jesus, right? There was two comings total, the first and second coming. And they say, well, the rapture view has like Jesus sort of coming to earth, rapturing us, and then we're caught up. So he has a coming before his second coming. That's not the second coming. And then the second coming comes and now we come down with him. So they view that as too many comings of Jesus. Um, I've, I'm not totally settled in the, on the timing of the rapture, as you may have observed or heard me say in the past. Um, I'm going to do a study on this one of these days. This is on my big list of things. I'm going to sit down and I've spent time on it, but I want to sit down and do it fresh. 
pray for wisdom, dig into a whole bunch of arguments, and then see what I can come out with and share it with you guys. There's a couple different views. Um, let's see here. We got another question. That was Weaver. Okay, so Brian Durham says, I was wondering if you thought Jeremiah 17, 13 is a prophecy of John 8, 1 through 11. Um, I probably don't, but let me, let me, let me go pull it up. Jeremiah 17, 13. Jeremiah 17, 13, for what it's worth, this passage says, O Lord, the hope of Israel, all who forsake you shall be ashamed. Those who depart from me shall be written in the earth because they have forsaken the Lord, the fountain of living waters. So I think this is probably the phrase you're getting at. By, by the way, when I said for what it's worth, I don't mean the scripture. I mean, for what my opinion is worth. Here it comes. Anyway, uh, those who depart shall be written in the earth. I think this is probably where you're connecting it to John. In John chapter 8, we read about the, uh, the woman caught in adultery. And Jesus, this is the one place where Jesus is recorded writing. Right, so he's caught in adultery, and he's like, "Hey, let the one who has the sin cast the, who has no sin cast the first stone." And he starts writing in the ground. We don't know what he writes, right? In the passage, he's writing in the ground something, and while he's doing that, everyone just starts leaving, right? Because they're all aware of their sin, and so they just start leaving. Then he says, "I don't condemn you either." And the two issues with this passage: one, there's a te- there's a textual issue with this passage, whether it, it it properly belongs in John eight. This is one of those uh, one of the two major passages in our New Testament that we look at and have this question about. I have some videos on that content, but let's, let's just like set that issue aside for the moment. And we'll ask this, this phrase, those who depart from me shall be written in the earth. Um, that I think is a phrase that they're, they're written in the earth. My opinion is that they have permanent dwelling on earth. This is where they live. This is where they stay. Their life starts and ends on earth. Um, they, they're not written in heaven is the idea. They don't have eternal life. That, I think, is what uh, Jeremiah 17, 13 is getting at. They don't have eternal life. To connect it to John 8, we would have to say that what Jesus was doing is writing the names of people in the earth and that that was telling them, you're not going to heaven, you're not going to heaven, you're not going to heaven. Personally, I don't think that that seems to connect to John 8 um, at all, in my opinion. For what it's worth. All right, we've got uh, one more here from Quick Attack Films. Quick Attack Film says, I would like to serve the body by making videos, but I'm afraid my sin is too great to be any sort of teacher. Should I deal with my sin first, or am I still able to uh, be a teacher despite of it? Um, Quick Attack Films, I'm, man, I'm just encouraged by your willingness to even bring it up and talk about it. Um, on one side, I'll say that I think most wonderful, godly servants of Christ have felt that way. How could I? How could I serve? How could I, who am I to do it? On the other hand, you know, in which case I'd be like, go out and serve. On the other hand, there, there could be like a major issue that you do need to deal with. I think that the right answer is you need accountability with a godly person in your life. Someone you can look up to and someone you can lean on and you go and you spill the beans with them, right? It needs to be someone who's, you, who's near you, who knows you, who you can stay regularly accountable to. And, and they won't call you. You have to call them, right? Don't wait for them to call you, but... But spill the beans with them and you tell them all your whole situation. Say, I want to do ministry. I want to serve. Here's the problem I've got. But this is totally separate from you serving in ministry. You have this issue that you're aware of that's breaking your heart. Don't pick between that and ministry. Deal with that issue whether or not you do ministry. Take that thing to the Lord. And if you fail, take it to him again right away. And if you fail, take it to him again right away. And if you fail, take it to him again right away. And do that again. Right? Rinse and repeat. Because this decision, do I keep this sin or do I do ministry? 
not a good decision. The sin issue has to be dealt with no matter what. And then I do hope that you can step up and give a shot to serving and doing more ministry. I think it's a wonderful thing. Oh my, I just was given um, every question on the planet sent to me. So we're going to plow through a few. I'll do, I'll do some quicker answers to see if I can get to as many of these as possible. All right. Um, Ichthys Forever says, what does it mean to boast in the Lord and how should we do it? I think boasting in the Lord is like the exact opposite or it's the same type of things when I boast in myself, man, I'm amazing, man, I'm good. I'm excited about how great I am at something. I'm just doing that with God. I'm ex- man, God's wonderful. God's amazing. He's my strength. He's my boast. He's the one I lean on and rely on. And there's tons of ways to do that. I could do it with my attitude. I could do it with my words. I could do it in worship songs. I could do it when I give him credit for things, um, you know, that, that he has done in my life. Okay. You run a race and you win, you know, you ran the race, you won everybody. You get credit for that. I mean, but God made your legs, you know what I mean? Or God saved your soul and gave you the courage to step out and continue to live life that you even would even be in a race. Um, so we, we give him the credit he is due. Isaiah Romo says, Mike, did Jesus cause uh, or permit drunkenness by providing more wine to assumably drunk guests? What is drunkenness? Thank you for your time. This is a good question. Okay, so check this out. In... Um, in the Gospel of John, we have the first miracle of Jesus that's recorded, and it's the wedding at Cana of Galilee. Uh, the wedding at Cana of Galilee. And let's just read it to us so we can all be on the same page here. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Now, both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. And when they ran out of wine, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. They have no wine. Woman, Jesus says to her, woman, what does your concern have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Uh, short version, Jesus doesn't want to expose who he is yet, right? He doesn't want a public miracle that everybody knows about just yet. Um, his mother said to the servants, whatever he says to you, do it. Now there were six, uh, there were set there six water pots of stone, according to the manner of purification of the Jews, 20 or 30 gallons a piece of water, massive amounts of water. They'd wash their hands. They would do that kind of thing. Jesus said to them, fill the water pots with water. It's ironic that they were empty, right? They should have had water in them already. But he says, fill the water pots with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, draw some out now and take it to the master of the feast. And they took it. Okay, now the comments of the master of the feast is what this question gets at. Because this guy, he he talks about what Jesus did. And some people think he's indicating that the guests at the wedding are already drunk. And Jesus is making more wine for them. I get this interpretation from people all the time, actually. But I think it's wrong. And he said to them, draw some water out now. They take it to him. Verse 9, when the master of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine and did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom. And he said to him, every man at the beginning sets out the good wine. And when the guests have well drunk, then the inferior, you have kept the good wine until now. So implication, the guests have already well drunk. The guests are therefore drunken, therefore inebriated. Um, does this mean that Jesus was giving drunk people more alcohol? <laughs> I, I don't think so. And I have, uh, I have a couple thoughts on that. One, uh, weddings lasted for days, days. So even if, and this is probably the primary reason, even if the guests had drunk a decent amount during the wedding, it was days long. So Jesus provides more wine after they've run out doesn't mean they're currently, they drunk and now they're drinking more. This is stretched out over a long period of time. He's simply saying, you usually bring out the best wine first and then you bring out the inferior. Some interpret this 
and they add to what this guy's saying, they go, well, when he says when the guests have drunk well, then the inferior is brought out. Really, he's saying that you wait till they're intoxicated, then you bring out bad wine and they can't tell. But that's us adding to the text. He just, he's not saying that clearly. We're adding to the text there. The other thing is just that Jesus providing more wine doesn't, uh, doesn't mean that everyone who is already drunk should continue to drink more. Drunkenness was considered a problem back then, just like it is today. So him providing wine to a whole group of people at a celebration doesn't mean that the drunk ones that are there are therefore excused for drinking more. They should have something called self-control. That's my answer. Yeah, I don't think this, this should be. This should be used in a discussion of whether wine is acceptable or not. Yeah, gee, obviously it's acceptable. The question is, is drunkenness acceptable? We have clear teaching in scripture that it's absolutely not. The Crooks of the Cross has a question. Long-time listener, first-time... Uh, Listener? First time calling in? Anyway, I get what you're saying. Long time listener, first time calling in. Do you have any advice for starting a Christian YouTube channel? Um, yeah, there's a, I'll, just, I'll just ramble off something off the top of my head here. Um, identify your target audience. Write down a list of features or character traits that you think your target audience has. Make it very specific. Target a narrow band of people. Figure out your content strategy, uh, which is who am I trying to focus on? Who am I trying to mi uh, minister to? How, is my, how am I fitting a niche? You might be doing response videos to atheists. You might be doing um, tough theology questions for advanced theological students. You might be be doing beginning Christian stuff for new believers um, or pop level dealing with news articles and how they are from a Christian worldview. I mean, these are all different things. What I don't recommend is doing that all with the same channel, at least when you're starting out. Variety channels, it's a lot harder to get off the ground. There's a couple things for you. Uh, September Morning Bell says, Hi, Mike. What's your view on Christianity? Christians writing fiction and fantasy books. Um, I'm totally fine with it. I, I think obviously writing any sort of story, you could morally compromise in the things you're writing. That's possible, right? You could write very wrong things or inappropriate things. But in general, I think um, fantasy and fiction books, I don't feel like they're wrong. I think that they're a, you know, a, a fun thing for us to get into and read. I enjoy them myself. Um, so yeah, I... I don't, I don't see a clear teaching in scripture that says like, you can't do that. So why would I limit the artistic abilities of people? I, I don't want to limit that uh, any more than is necessary. Sarah Sophia has a question. Matthew 6, 25 through 34. Oh, I already asked that one. That's what happens when questions get asked lots of times. <laughs> um, Okay, uh, Rayanne has a question about Genesis, and these are the kinds of questions that a lot of people are asking right, right now. Genesis chapter 4, verses 13 through 17. Um, we'll just go there. Okay, and um, the question is going to be, how was Cain afraid of someone finding and killing him, and how did he get a wife if Adam and Eve were the only people on earth at this point? All right, here it is. And Cain said to the Lord, this is after he killed his brother, and God's like, puts a mark on him uh, that he will, well, he's about to put a mark on him so that he'll be protected. It's not actually, that mark's not actually a good thing, not a bad thing. Anyway, verse 13, uh, Cain said to the Lord, my punishment's greater than I can bear. Surely you've driven me out this day from the face of the ground. I shall be hidden from your face. I shall be a fugitive and a vagabond on the earth. And it will happen that anyone who finds me will kill me. And then God gives him a mark and he's like, hey, you know, the Lord says to him, whoever kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord set a mark on Cain, lest anyone finding him should kill him. God doesn't want killing, 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 killing going on. And then Cain went out from the presence of the Lord and dwelt in the land of Nod on the east of Eden. And Cain knew his wife and she conceived and bore Enoch. 
and he built a city and called the name of the city after the name of his son Enoch. Uh, first off, Cain's wife, uh, we don't know. I don't know when he found a wife, when he got a wife. It just says he knew his wife. Uh, he might have already been married at this point. So we don't know where his wife came from. The text doesn't tell us. That doesn't seem, I know people always say, where did Cain get his wife? Well, I don't know where he got his wife, but it, it happened before the mark, before he was driven out. But he did go plant a city. Um, so we, we have a couple options. Um, one option is we're trying to fill in the gaps that scripture doesn't make clear to us in Genesis. One is to say Cain's wife and the other people around him that might kill him and the, the this population of the city are a result of Adam and Eve's children and their children's children. We don't know when Cain and Abel killed themselves. This could have been a very long time after Adam and Eve started having kids. There could be dozens or hundreds of people or more around at the point at which Cain kills Abel. We don't know. Okay, not if you take like a, a more uh, literal, um, you know, understanding of Genesis here. So so that, that could be, uh, they could be genetically related is what I'm saying. And, and then the argument in favor of this is that um, issues of genetic mal- malfunctions or deformities and things like that wouldn't have been an issue right then after Adam and Eve are created perfect. It would have been generations down the line that they would have had to make prohibitions against, um, you know, family relationships, that kind of thing. Now, other people would say, oh, well, that's because there were other humans outside the garden. And I'm not going to defend that view, but that's going to be the view that they're going to suggest. There just were other humans outside the garden. And they're going to say, look, the fact that Cain went out and people were looking for him and he's aware of these other humans, they think that this implies that Adam and Eve aren't the only humans. They're more like the representative of humankind. They're the priestly examples or representatives of all humans, just like Jesus represents us all on the cross. That's another view. I'm not defending that view, but that is um, one other perspective that people have. And there's probably others as well. And... Hold on, just getting back to your questions. Thanks for joining me, guys. Um, I know you're all bored. Most of you are bored (laughs) and you're tired of watching the news. So let's talk about the word of God. Uh, Okay, here we are from Lauren in Arts says, my question is, if we're all happy in heaven or paradise, will we not be sad and mourning for those in hell or Sheol? Uh, This is a good question. You know, God says he'll wipe away every tear. And, um, and, and there's even a text that says the former things will not be remembered anymore or brought to mind. And so how do we take this? And some have taken this and they say, well, if I'm going to be happy in heaven, then I simply can't be aware of the suffering of, of others outside of the presence of God, be in hell or, or suffering on earth while I'm in God's presence. And their solution is you won't remember it. And I, re- I remember one friend who her, she had a, her father had died when she was just a little kid. And a pastor told her, she said, you know, um, if, if, if he forgets everything, if everything's going to be wiped away and we don't remember, when I see my dad in heaven, will he remember me? And the pastor told her, no. Um, and this is what we call going beyond the text of scripture. Now, let me please offer some clarity so people don't think this. Because that bothered her quite a bit. The phrase um, not brought to remembrance doesn't mean memory loss. Okay, it never means memory loss in the Old Testament, um, that when God's forgotten something or not brought it to remembrance, the idea is not that he like it's literally gone from the mind. It means you're not throwing it in their face. You're not bringing it up anymore or you're not worrying about it anymore. That's the idea. So the pains I've experienced in the past, I don't worry about them anymore because I have and this is the key. I have resolution on those issues. Some of us have this. We have pains in the past and we've become resolved like I'm okay with it now. I don't have that. Ugh still in my heart 
I've some areas I do and some areas I don't. Well, when we are in God's presence and we are in his glory for all eternity and he wipes away every tear, even the pain I'm aware of is just outshined by the glory that I'm currently in. That's the idea. I see the consummation of all things. I see the, the, uh, the good that God has brought through all bad stuff. Now, what about those who are in hell currently suffering if I'm in the presence of God, if we see that happening? Um, I think that the answer here is that you... Here, it's not wiped away because you don't know it's happening. Rather, you have such a greater perspective in God's very presence that you don't think of this as a bad thing. I think hell is not an immoral thing. And some, especially nowadays, some people do. I think there's a, um, oh, maybe you should do a video on this sometime. There's like a, there's like a feeling in our culture that hell is immoral in principle. It's not across all of our culture, but it's in enough of our culture. I think that even for Christians who feel this, they struggle with this and they go, Lord, I still trust you, but man, I really struggle with this. You know, um, I think that what's going to happen is you're going to be in God's presence and you're going to see it from his perspective and you're going to go, oh, I didn't realize, I didn't understand, I didn't know. And so this, this sometimes happens. Uh, I've seen videos of like, say a police officer and they're being violent with someone they're arresting and they're like just tackling him and taking him down and doing all this stuff to him. And people outcry like, this is abuse. This is police abuse. And police abuse does happen. It's a real thing. But then you get behind the story or you see the, the, the moments before that video clip and you realize that this person had to be taken down with all that violence. It was the right thing to do, even though it, we're not happy about it. It was the right thing to do. And I think that when we see things from God's perspective, we're going to realize, duh, surprise, God is right about hell. He's right about it. It's the right thing to do. And when we see it from that perspective, we're not going to be tearing up and crying over these issues. We're going to, we're going to see the satisfying justice of God. So there's a, there's my, my view on that. Um, brother love says, is there hope for Christians struggling with continuous sin like pornography or is repentance and struggling through it sufficient? I think that there, um, I think both of those are true. I think there's hope for them to overcome it. Read Romans chapter six, read it again, read it again until you believe it. Take steps to overcome it. Deal with sin when it first begins and not when it's become explodingly large in your life. Deal with temptation at the beginning moment, not at the final last moment of sin. But I also think that repentance and struggling through it is sufficient. I think that you, yeah, you repent and you're dealing with it. You're dealing with it. I think that, I think that God's embracing you. God's with you. God has not forsaken you in that scenario. Uh, Dabney Langhorn says, who is the word? Lord referring to in 2 Corinthians 3.17. Is it implying that Jesus is the Holy Spirit? All right, let's try this verse here. 2 Corinthians 3 verse 17. There we go. It says, Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But we all with unveiled face beholding as in a mirror, the glory of the Lord. Um, uh, let's see. I'm looking at a couple different translations here so I can get a better view of it. Now the Lord is the spirit and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Okay. Who is the Lord talking about here? Well, let's, let's back up a little bit. Let's see how it is used. Um, since we have such hope, we are very bold, not like Moses who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end, but their minds were hardened for to this day when they read the old covenant, that same veil remains unlifted because uh, only through Christ is it taken away. 
So there's Christ as a topic of discussion there. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. When one turns to the Lord. So we wouldn't normally think turning to the Lord is specifying the Holy Spirit, right? Um, Now the Lord is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Um, I, he, I think he's dealing with issues of the spirit and the letter here. And there's an important contrast there. Um, my, my, my thought right now, I'd want to actually do a more careful thought, work through this passage look at some parallel passages. My thought is this, is that sometimes um, the Holy Spirit is treated as the spirit of Jesus in some places. And in other places, the Holy Spirit is treated as something different than Jesus, right? So the Holy Spirit comes upon Jesus. So he's not Jesus. But at some point, Jesus is like, I'll be with you. And you find out I'll be with you is the Holy Spirit being in you. He says, I'll make my home in you. And that's the Holy Spirit. And he calls that the Father making his home. So there is this oneness in God. We affirm that. The problem with the oneness theology is that they also deny the difference. They affirm the oneness, but they deny the difference. So they deny that the Holy Spirit is a person of the Trinity. Jesus is a person. The Father is a person. So, um, in a sense, I would say 2 Corinthians 3.17, if it's your only verse you have in the whole Bible, it's affirming a sense of oneness in God. But if you look at all of the texts of scripture, you'll realize that oneness is affirmed, but it is not the whole story, not oneness Pentecostal theology in that sense. Mark H says in Genesis 6, take a couple more questions. In Genesis 6, reference to the sons of God, who are they referring to? Uh, well, there's a couple different options here, and I'm just going to refer to you guys. I have a video on this um, in my First Peter series where I deal with several different options, possibilities of the sons of God. I do lean towards thinking these sons of God in Genesis six are angelic beings. That is my that is my leaning. Um, let me get you guys up to speed for anybody who doesn't already know what this debate's about. When men began to multiply on the face of the earth uh, of the land, and the daughters were born to them. The sons of God saw that the daughters of men were attractive and they took as their wives any they chose. So, you know, then, then they have kids and the, these, these kids are the, the Nephilim. They were on the earth in those days. Okay. So it seems like maybe these Nephilim are related to these sons of God being with the, the daughters of, of man. The different views is there's like a Sethite view. The sons of God refers to those who are faithful to God. They're tempted away from God by looking at beautiful, ungodly women. Okay. Hey, that happens. And that happens a lot, I would say. That happens frequently. Okay, so that's a possibility. Um, The other view is that the sons of God are angelic beings and that they are somehow fornicating with with human women. And this is some sort of like rebellion. I think because of New Testament teaching, I I lean towards thinking these are angelic beings. How they did this, um, I would lean towards thinking they possessed humans in order that they could you know, fornicate with other humans. They possessed men so they could fornicate with women. That would be my leaning. Um, but I have a video in First Peter where I talk about that in more detail and you're welcome to check it out. Uh, Molly Aloysius says, Pastor Mike, how do I know if I have blasphemed the Holy Spirit? Um, I have a video on this. Molly, um, if you just type my name, Mike Winger, into the search engine on YouTube, type Mike Winger and blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, that video will pop right up for you. It'll be right there. I I do a careful, thoughtful teaching of this verse, of this passage, of this idea. And that's what I want to reference you to, a careful teaching on that. And I think it will comfort you and I think it will help you. And I think you'll find it to be biblical. Colin says, anything I miss for a Mark 13, 24 through 32 essay? Olivet Discourse, um, 
I'm sorry, I don't understand that question, Colin. I'm scanning through it, and I don't. I I know you probably tried to cram a whole bunch into a short question, and I just literally don't understand that question. Um, but I do have a content on the Olivet Discourse online. I have a video called "Is Jesus a Failed Apocalyptic Prophet?" or "Is Jesus a Failed Prophet?" There's a video with that kind of title in it. Matthew Entwistle says, "Can a Christian read Greek?" Phil- Philosophers like Plato and Aristotle, uh, yeah, you can't really argue against it because it seems like Paul read Greek philosophers. And not only did he read them uh, at some point in his life, maybe he read before he was saved, but he would use that knowledge when witnessing to other people. He quoted those those poets and those philosophers when he was witnessing, talking to the Corinthians, um, talking to different groups of people. So if if he could do that, then we can too. Um, I think that that's, that can be smart. can be smart. It can also cause you problems especially if you're not very good at philosophy. What happens when you first enter into realms like philosophy or apologetics or theology is you know so little about it that what you do is you just find one guru and you read what they say and you just think that's the whole story. So if you go straight to Plato or Aristotle or one of these guys and that's kind of your, your all your philosophical study, then you're not really studying philosophy. You're just learning one guy. That can be the danger in my opinion. And that's why make sure that you know the word of God the best. Make sure you have your Christian worldview solidly in place. Then you might want to start with Christian philosophers. And then you can branch out into other content as well. That would be my recommendation. Sean Fry says, is there good evidence of the Exodus? Yeah, there's actually really good evidence of the Exodus, Sean Fry. Very good evidence. And it's even more recently in the last 50 years been been coming out. Um, I got to do a video. Um, there's some guys that I like to bring on for an interview to talk about this issue sometime soon. There's great evidence. Uh, look it up. Look up recent content on it. Uh, the, t- the two steps that people do to say there's no evidence for the Exodus. One, they ignore the biblical date of the Exodus. Forget that the Bible says it happened around 1400 BC. We're going to say it happened around 11 or 1200 BC. And then they say, there's no evidence that it happened around 11 or 1200 BC. What's wrong with that thinking? Turns out there's a lot of evidence that happened around 1400 BC, which is the date the Bible gives. So this is the biblical date for the Exodus. Um, they're, 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 being, uh, they're being weird about this stuff. Cody Sparks says, uh, how would you answer a Christian who claims that believers don't have a sinful flesh after being born again? They use 1 John 2.1 as though it's saying, if we sin, ignoring the other verses. Um, I think 1 John tends to give us these really extreme statements. I know people who talk like, like you know, you draw the, the extremes um, with with very much black and white language. That's First John, but I do think that even First John seems to indicate that they're that Christians Christians have sin issues. Um, so, what does it say in First John two one? The very verse you're saying that they use. I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. He's in, in other words, they might sin, and he's writing to them so that they won't sin. He's in trying to encourage them not to sin. Now he'll go on to talk about people who are like living lifestyles of sin, living in just open rebellion against God and how this is indicating that they probably aren't Christians in the first place. But there is definitely sin issues in Christians' lives. And if you just read through the New Testament, read the epistles, obviously there's sin issues. Paul says to the to the believers, this proves your friend wrong. I don't mean to be rude about it. But Paul says to the believers, he says, walk in the spirit and you won't fulfill the desires of the flesh. Wait a minute. There's desires of the flesh that I have to deal with that I might fulfill. And the solution is walk in the spirit. That means I still have the flesh. As a Christian, I struggle with the flesh every day, every day. And so do you. And so does your Christian, your, your Christian friend who says that they don't. Yeah, of course they do. And to think that they don't makes me worried for them because they'll be blind to the temptations they're facing. And they might, they might just ignore their sin issues because they think they don't have any. And that, that is a big mistake. 
Uh, Nathan Nicholson says, how is annihilationism not the obvious teaching of scripture when eternal life is dependent on salvation and substitutionary atonement requires the required punishment be served? Christ died. I'm going to read that one more time. How is annihilationism not the obvious teaching of scripture? Um, okay, so you, you think annihilationism, the idea that, um, you know, I cease existing if I die outside of Jesus. I'm, I'm just going to, at some point, Maybe I have temporarily punish, temporary punishment, but at some point I'm just going to stop existing, annihilated. Um, what makes it obvious to you is the following. Eternal life is dependent on salvation and substitutionary atonement requires the required punishment be served. Okay, so I, yes, the required punishment is required. I mean, that's the nature of a required punishment, right? Um, I think where I would disagree with you is thinking that eternal life means existing. I think eternal life in the scripture means more than existing. It's more than existence. For there are people who are alive right now, physically alive, but they're said to already be dead. And there are those who are alive right now, physically alive, who are said to have eternal life. Both of them exist. So eternal life and death here don't just refer to existing. So I think that, I think that deals with that, that question. Uh, yeah. Kristen Wood says, you're a blessing to us. Thank you, Kristen. Um, I can't tell you how blessed I am that the ministry I do can reach so many people. I'm blown away. I mean, it's like I pinch myself. Uh, I can't believe that I'm getting to minister to such different people around the world and get your guys, you get your guys messages and I give, I'm give God all the glory and all the credit. Um, I just pray that I'm doing well and being faithful in this ministry, but I'm, I'm tickled <laughs> with the idea that uh, I get to serve and, and minister to so many people. Um, I'm not worthy. That's for sure. But um I'm blessed. Uh, Will Kozib says, does every sin you've committed have to be confessed or does faith in Jesus cover all past and future sins? I don't think it's possible for you to confess every sin because you don't even know every sin you've committed. So, so yeah, no, I don't think every individual sin has to go through a process of confession, but I do think there is a sense of relationship with me and God, not just salvation, but the health of my relationship, my right, you know, like I'm married to my wife. That doesn't mean our relationship's healthy, right? So, I might not be in a healthy place in my walk with God and maybe I need to confess sin and deal with issues and get right with him. And for me, I often know this the moment I pray. The moment I begin to pray or worship, I'm suddenly very aware of sin issues. So pray a lot and you'll be aware of those things. Confess those issues and stay close to God. Keep yourself in the love of God, as it says. Um, yeah, Heaven, not Harvard, says, can you explain a biblical argument for or against infant baptism? I have a whole uh, video on that topic uh, on my YouTube channel. I'm sorry to point you to videos, but you want a biblical argument. You're going to want the real case, not just a summary. Um, but yeah, what we do is we go through. I'll give you a brief a brief summary, but you're going to want more. You just type Mike Winger infant baptism into the search engine. You should find it. The The arguments uh, for against infant baptism would be basically that the nature of baptism is that it is a proclamation of faith in Christ. And infants don't have faith in anything because they're infants. That would be the argument against it. The arguments for it would be an argument that, um, you know, baptism is, 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 is not speaking of salvation. It's, it's speaking of a covenant people. You're part of God's sort of covenant community. And so we're not going to ostracize our kids from that community. I don't think that's a strong argument. I don't think that it's grounded in scripture. I think we're, I think we're sort of making up categories um, here and then forcing on in the text. The other arguments for infant baptism are the household baptism passages in the book of Acts. In Acts, we read about whole households being baptized. In my video on this, I go through each of those passages to show 
that we have really good reason, really, really good reason to think that this does not include infants in these household baptism passages. That's a summary. All right. Zoe Abundance says, uh, do you think the Sabbath was a picture of the gospel resting from works? Hebrews 4. I think in Hebrews 4, it speaks of the Sabbath as being a picture of um, not only the gospel, but more than that. Not only the message of salvation in Christ, but it speaks of the experience of resting in Christ and entering into God's future, holy, eternal glory. So that, that future rest is, in that sense, talking about like heaven. But it does, it does contain an element, according to Hebrews 4, of the gospel in that on the seventh day you rest from your works. And you're being invited into, in Christ, into resting because he's finished the work. So yeah, I would agree. Catherine Bars says, hi, Mike. I was recently asked, how can you... Oh, I already answered that question. Uh, Damon Fuller, uh, I live three hours west of Chicago. Are you still on for the event there next month? No, I'm so sorry. We have to postpone the event, the Apologeticon event. If you guys have got tickets, they should already be refunded. You should have already got a refund. If you haven't, you can contact um, through the website or me, you know, send me a message from my website if you are having trouble. But uh, but yeah, we're, we're postponing it. Don't know when it's going to happen. We're floating an idea of maybe September. Like most people, we're just kind of on hold. Like, you know, when can we do this stuff? Let's just kind of wait and see. It'll pass though. This will pass and we'll get back to normal. It just takes some time. Um, yeah, Metron 98. Should we do baptisms for the dead? No. Um, Heath S. And there's no command in scripture to do it. There's a reference, baptism for the dead. There's a debate over what it meant. But whatever it meant, we're never commanded to do it. Never. Keep that in mind. Heath S. says, What is your thought on those who argue that Paul was actually a false apostle? Specifically, the Jesus words only group and the claim that John was talking of Paul in Revelation 2.2. Thanks, Mike. Um, the claim that John... Okay, let, let's just look at this. This is going to be the last question we do tonight, but let's look at this. John 2.2. It couldn't have been John 2.2. 2. Oh, Revelation 2.2. 2. It was John in Revelation 2.2. 2. Let's look at this passage and let's ask the question, right? We're going to be Bible thinkers here. Does this verse you're about to see, does it show us that Paul is a false apostle? Paul. He says, Jesus speaking to one of the churches, which church is it here? It is Ephesus, right? Jesus speaks to them and says, I know your works, your toil and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and have found them to be false. Okay. There were false apostles, false apostles going to Ephesus, and the conclusion that some people apparently have is that this is obviously Paul. Problem. Big problem. It's very clear that the Ephesians did receive Paul. Very clear. Not only does Paul write to them in loving terms, he's not even, like in 1 Corinthians, he defends his apostleship. But when he writes to the Ephesians, he doesn't defend anything. He's just like, I love you guys. You love me. Everything's great. I'm going to send, you know, so-and-so to you. Greet so-and-so. He has a great relationship with them. He's built them up. He's strengthened the church. He's planted elders in the church. And in the book of Acts, there's another piece, because this this Revelation passage is going to backfire on anyone who wants to use it against Paul. In, in the book of Acts, we find that Paul is still a leader over the elders in Ephesus when he tells them, hey, uh, have the Ephesian elders meet me in such and such city because I want to you know, give them teachings, leadership commands before I head over for Passover in Jerusalem. So that means that the Ephesians did receive Paul. We have this from 
different sources, even outside of Paul. The guy that wrote the Gospel of Luke, if they want to say Jesus' words only, well, the guy that wrote Luke also showed in Acts that Paul was an approved and accepted apostle, both in the book of Acts and by the other apostles and by the city Ephesus, by the believers in Ephesus. Therefore, if Ephesus was smart enough to be able to call out false apostles and they didn't call out Paul, what does that make Paul? A true apostle. Um, yeah, so that, that argument backfires, funnily enough. Um, oftentimes, cult groups will use verses that prove them wrong to try to prove them right. And it just takes a little bit of looking it up to see that. Yeah, um, we also have Peter who says that Paul is an apostle and speaks of his writings as, quote, scripture. Peter calls Paul's writings scripture. Yeah, these are these are kind of important things. Yeah, there are those who want to say that Paul was not an apostle. Um, this view is destructive. It's dangerous. It's just so they can smuggle in their own weird teachings, so they can strip out part of your New Testament, so they can take away the apostolic teaching we've received from the Apostle Paul and in, put in their own teaching. This is what leads into radically scary, weird, even cultish theology. So I say, run away. All right, you guys, um, here's the deal. Here's the plan coming up. Because people are on lockdown, um, I'm going to try and keep producing more video content. I did a video yesterday. I did a video today. I've got two videos coming up tomorrow. We'll see what else is coming up maybe later this week or or next week. I'm going to try and make more content. I just want to bless you and minister to you and give you something to um, spiritually grow by. But this will not replace your actual need for fellowship and connection. Call somebody up and talk to them on the phone. Five minutes even. Just call someone and talk to them. Uh, stay in fellowship, stay in contact with individuals and don't forget to move and exercise. We're all going to get fat. Let's be real. We're all going to get fat as we sit at home and eat all our junk food. Um, it's good to exercise and get up and be active. I think that would be smart. So yeah. Anyway, those are just some counsel, some words for you guys. I hope it's a blessing and stay tuned. You might want to click, you know, not only subscribe, but click that bell icon and turn notifications on. If you want to know if I happen to go live at a random time, which is pretty likely in the uh, in the coming weeks so thank you so much god bless you oh and maybe tell you what here's what i'll do i'll just do it i'll do a brief little live stream come sometime soon uh, and i'll talk about this this was given to me from pastor dean odell dean odell is a flat earth uh, teacher and prop uh, uh, i don't know advocate and he wrote this big book supporting the flat earth he sent it to me with an inscription where he let me know that I was teaching false things and that I should read his book. I might do a live stream later, share a couple things I saw in this book. If you'll notice the cover, it's the very verse that I utterly refuted, but we'll do it again if we need to. The seal shows that the earth is flat with a ridge around it and all that. Yeah. This is not good theology. But sometimes bad theology can help us to get better at good theology when we analyze it carefully. So, Lord bless you. And if you're part of that Flat Earth movement, I'm glad you're still watching my stuff. I hope you continue to watch it and think about it. And I hope I can change your mind. So, take care.